One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. While we eagerly await the return of the Pro Peloton at the Bradley Wiggins Show, we thought you'd enjoy a bonus episode of Return to London 2012, Eurosport series reliving that golden Olympic summer. Brad and Lizzie Dignan look back on the men's and women's road races and recall the huge expectation at a time when British cycling was on top of the world. Plus, Brad recalls his defining moment his gold medal winning time trial just a week after becoming the first Briton to win the Tour de France. You can catch more from the Return to London 2012 series on the Eurosport player. For now, here's Brad and Lizzie in conversation with Orla Shenoui. Hello and welcome to Return to London 2012, a special series of daily highlights from that magical summer of sport. Well, today we're looking back at the men's and women's road cycling. There was huge expectation heading into these events, coming as they did on the first two full days of competition and at a time when British cycling was on top of the world. Well, look at who we have to walk us down memory lane. It's Bradley Wiggins and Lizzie Dignan. Hello to both of you. Hello, you all right? Hello. Very good. How are you both? Good, thank you. Yeah, good, thanks. Looking forward to it. Are you? Are you looking forward to reliving 2012? Well, it's, it's eight years ago, isn't it? It's, it's incredible to think it's eight years ago now. Um, it seems like yesterday. It's nice to do it now, I think, as well, because we are in this situation where, where nothing much else is happening. So it's nice to relive how magical that was. Bradley, let's take you back, first of all, then. You were coming into these games a week after becoming the first Briton to win the Tour de France in history, if we could ever forget. Your focus was on the time trial, of course, for these games, but... First, you had the job of trying to help Mark Cavendish in the road race. What did you think GB's chances were then? I mean, it felt like everyone else had just assumed that a gold medal was going to be yours for the takeout. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you said the focus on the time trial. I think there was so much uncertainty coming out of the tour because um, all year we just, we'd never, you could never plan for how you're going to finish the tour, whether you crash in the last few days or whether you're tired or not. And um, it was a case of not looking too far ahead. So getting the tour done then coming out of that. And then the plan was always to fly straight back here, which we did to Surrey. Um, and then the focus was for Cav on the time trial, I think uh, for the road race, because none of us really wanted to, or certainly me and Chris Froome didn't want to be talking too much about the time trial to deter or take away from what we were going to, how hard we were going to work for Cav. So it was important. We never spoke about the time trial. And it was all about the road race really, because we were hundred percent committed to Mark for the road race. We have no thoughts to the time trial really. I think, in the past, maybe some riders had sort of thought, well, I'm only here for the time trial. That was one rider less for Cav. Um, so it was important. It was all hands on deck, really, for Mark um, during that road race. And that was the focus. And nothing, no time, no thoughts or nothing was spoke about for the time trial. And we didn't know how the road race was going to go. We didn't know if we are going to be finished exhausted or have a crash or something like that. So I remember just thinking we'd commit 100%. I think... Um, that day, I think I rode on the front for 235k, and um, I averaged like 320 watts all day for it, which is quite a lot for anyone who's. But 
So I was exhausted at the end. Um, so I, I really gave everything um, with no thoughts to the time trial. Um, and it was only after that, it was a case of just resting up for three days and, and seeing what I had for the time trial, really. Now, most people that rode the road race, like Tony Martin and Cancellara and that, um, I've had climbed off in the road race to prepare for the time trial. So you, you couldn't think of the time trial while you're doing the road race because if you started for one minute thinking about what your competitors were doing, then I'd have took my eye off the ball for Mark. So, And I think he really appreciated that, that we, we really gave all to him. Um, so as I say, it was, there was no thought to the time trial. It's weird going to Olympic Games and your event, which you normally spend days and weeks before um, sort of getting nervous about, wondering whether the form's there or not. It was the first Olympics I've been to where it was a case of we're just this is we're going to ride the road race, then we're going to turn up at your event and see how it goes. There's no pressure, no expectation, which is quite a weird thing to go into Olympics. There's not many people that would go into an Olympics like that because our success was the tour in that. Well, we're going to get to both of those races in just a moment, but Lizzie, for you first of all, Bradley was an Olympic veteran, and for you, this was the first Olympics of your career. You'd had considerable success already of course you've won national championships world titles on the track but this being your first games how big did you dare to drink oh not as big as a medal I definitely surprised myself uh, yeah. with that and and that to me was just down to the home crowd I think I outperformed myself massively um yeah I was I would have been delighted going into it with a top 10 result so to come away like I say with a silver medal was beyond expectation so Bradley, we've mentioned the Tour de France already. Um, and as you said, you, you guys all sort of skipped any parties in Paris and flew straight to Surrey for the games. How was that transition for you? I mean, the country was going crazy for your win. You had to keep your head down and concentrate on the day job for a bit longer. Yeah, we just, um, we had no idea what the reaction was back here or anything. So we, we all flew back into Surrey. We were in Fox Hills Resort, which was, we were pretty much guarded there and we had security there. No one was really allowed in. Um, we just went back into our small team, really. There's four or five of us by then. We obviously picked up David Miller, who was at the tour with us, Ian Stannard, and then the girls, Lizzie, and all those, uh, Emma Poole and that were there. I remember we just sort of sat in the restaurant, really, and it felt like such a small team. You had the women's team and us, and we used to, it was so quiet. We had Soren from Team Sky was cooking for us. I normally go to a Worlds or an Olympics, and there's every man and his dog there from Great Britain, you know. Um, it's like 50 odd people, but because we were the road team, we just had this kind of two little teams sitting having our dinner every night um, and Doug Daly popping in and out, you know, informing us what was going on. Because obviously most of the British team was staying in the village across the other side of London. So the whole thing was really weird. It didn't feel like you were at an Olympic Games. And to add to that, we were in the UK. So we'd put our Olympic kit on and go out training around Surrey. And um, it was just a bizarre time, really. Like, you know, like no other Olympics I've been to but at the same time, the, the atmosphere around the country, really, and, and riding around, every car would beep you when you're out training. We stop at a little cafe for a tea or a coffee and not really realising at that time, you know, that we'd been at the tour and people had been watching it. So we'd get mobbed, you know, with Mark and Froomey and that. And David Miller had won a stage at the tour that year. So we'd all done something. The only one who had it was Ian Stanford. I never really knew he was. So I'm going to ask him if he was a mechanic. Very <laughs> um, <laughs> Ian. But um, no, it was it was really, really special. And then obviously, you know, I think the morning we, well, I, I rang the bell on the Friday, didn't I? And I, I came in a police escort back across London and walked straight into the team meeting for the road race for Mark and that um, on Hyde Park Corner. And then, um, 
it was getting up at six to have breakfast in a travelling on Hyde Park Corner and driving 10 minutes to the Olympic road race start, like miles from where I grew up as a kid, you know, right around Marble. I used to go pilfering around there, got mugged once around there and, you know, just like getting up to all sorts. And then driving to the Olympic road race start, I think we started um, just behind kind of um, Haymarket. We parked all the buses on the square and then rode up to the mall and standing on the mall to start the Olympic road race and Prince Charles was there and stuff. And my mum walked from her flats just around in Pimlico. I mean, it was bizarre really, you know, that you could do something like that. And then we started and that was it, you know, for the next seven hours we were trying to control the race for Mark. But, you know, it's only now that I look back and think about all that, you know, you're supposed to do Olympics in other people's countries, but to do it on your, literally on my doorstep, I grew up two miles away from the start. And um, I don't think I ever really considered the impact of that at the time really. And particularly, you know, to then to do the time job around Hampton Court, you know, 1.2 million people there. In the prime of my career, it was my defining moment, you know, to be able to win a London Olympic time job. 20 years before that, you know, I was trying to get out of a council estate in Lycra and I used to wear a tracksuit because I feared for my life because it was such a bigoted, violent time in the late 80s, early 90s. And I couldn't be seen dead in Lycra in a council estate in London. And... um the change in cycling 20 years on to win Olympic gold there. It was phenomenal, really. I never really considered the social impact where I come from, um, how much a cyclist could 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 go to those heights in in London, really. So it was um, amazing, really. When Bradley talks about, Lizzie, the, the sort of the atmosphere, society, when he was growing up as a cyclist and then and then going to what he's describing with those huge crowds. Remember when, when you guys were just out for your training rides in Surrey, I remember people cheering you guys up Box Hill when it was days away from the Olympics even getting underway. What was that like for you as a young cyclist? It was a little bit overwhelming, I must admit, but at the same time, we were probably in the shadow of the men's team. I mean, Brad had just won the Tour de France, so we could kind of snip under the radar a little bit all the pressure was on Tav so we kind of were just along for the ride and it was quite nice and <laughs> yeah like we we weren't talked about that much we weren't bigged up there was no pressure on us and there was only pressure once you know Calf didn't get that medal and it was kind of our turn next and what could we salvage from that but um yeah like I say just a nice little bubble to be a part of you had the worst of the weather it rained all day didn't it yeah, it did. Yeah, it was. I, yeah. I liked it though. Obviously, I'm. Uh, I'm glad that it felt quite under the radar from the inside because from the outside it felt like the pressure on you, Lizzie, was hugely intense. Poster girl for the games and everything. But we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to talk about the men's road race first because it did come first, Bradley. Um, talk us through that morning then um, and the race itself. Um, everyone knew the Brits were going to be going for it. You were the team to beat. What were the tactics for that day? Oh, I think we probably were a little bit arrogant in some ways as well because of what we'd done the year before in Copenhagen. Um, when we took up, you know, we rode from the start pretty much. Um, we were we had a lot less. We had nine riders in Copenhagen the year before and we only had five. Obviously, one of them was cab. So we had four riders to try and control the race, really, which was going to be so difficult because everyone knew that, that Mark really wanted to win it. And we probably took it up a bit too early. We were hoping that Bernie Eisen would come and help us from Austria and other riders had been promised to us that we never saw all day. <laughs> Bernie, um, Bernie came in at the end, didn't he? He did do a bit, and actually. Mark, we Mark's have, a good friend and um, teammate. We were supposed to have one or two other Belarusians or something that were going to come and help, <laughs> but we never saw them. Um, but, yeah, we just... Um, 
we actually did a pretty good job in marshalling it all. Just that group slipped away in the last couple of, I think it was the last two laps of the Box Hill circuit. And um, Mark, we, they were kind of just ahead of us on the last time up Box Hill, but it was just that kind of 30, 40 seconds where it was a bit too, you know, sort of, we couldn't close it really because it was about 30 on run. At that stage, it was still just me and David Miller riding. And um, I mean, it was just, that was the tactics really. But I mean, perhaps we, we were probably, it felt like we were kind of, it was it was more important for someone else to win for the rest of the peloton than Mark, and it did feel like we kind of the Australians never helped at any point during the race, and they could have won it. Um, the irony is that the Aussies kind of we ended up playing off against each other the whole race, and you know they were sort of saying, "Well, you ride, you know, we're not riding." And they had Matt Goss, and Cab actually punctured with five k to go. He had a slow puncture, which no one knows about. Um, so he, he had a front slow puncture with 5k to go. So he didn't sprint for the minor placing, but Matt Goss won the sprint for the minor placing. So had, had it all been together and the Australians had rode, Goss would have probably been the Olympic champion because Cav wouldn't have been able to sprint. So um, it's kind of funny, really. And um, they in doing that, the Australians came away with nothing because I think Stuart O'Grady was seventh or something. Um, and it was a bizarre finish, really, because Vinokurov won. But as I say, everyone was kind of... It, was, it felt like the whole race was against us and it was like anyone could win except uh, trying to win, let Cav win on, on home soil. So it was a bizarre race, but um, it is what it is. That's the difficulty, such a lottery in an Olympic road race because you've got 200-odd guys that could potentially win it. So Well, there was plenty going on and there were plenty of politics. We've had nine laps of Box Hill. Philippe Gilbert of Belgium has launched an attack and Team GB have been controlling the peloton for the whole race so far. Bradley, talk us through the formation of the race as you were coming out of Box Hill for that final time. Um, I think we, we me and uh, Chris Froome were riding on the front still, um, from what I can remember. We, we got a bit detached towards the top because people had started attacking, really. And I remember we kind of just went over the top of Box Hill. Um, Cav was completely isolated on his own at the front of the race, chasing the, what was the breakaway. Um, and me and Froomey were like the last two left. I think Ian Stannard actually was in there as well. So we kind of worked our way back up the bunch, managed to hang on and then got back to the front end. I think me and me and Ian basically got back on the front and we, me and Ian rode all the way from Box Hill pretty much till 5k to go since we started coming back through sort of um, Chelsea and that. Um, um, and we kept it, must have been 40 seconds a minute. I can't remember what the gap was. But we could always see them. But no one else helped. And we had sort of four or five Australians sat behind us. Cav kept asking them, Michael Rogers, of course, who was in Team Sky at that time, whether they would put a man up and help chase. They said they wouldn't because Stuart Grady was in the front. And me and Ian, I think there was a Belarusian then came up at some point, maybe Kirianka. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, there were sort of three riders. We just rode all the way back until and emptied it and swung off 5K to go. And that was, that was pretty much it, really. Um, I think Froome may have got dropped a bit before that. I can't remember. He'd, he'd pulled some turns before Box Hill and stuff, but we were just so isolated, really. And as I say, then Cav was on his own. Um, and and that was it. The break stayed away. Vinokurov won the race. Iran was second, wasn't he? And I, don't, I can't remember who got third. But um, but I want to mention Froome because he'd finished just behind you at the Tour de France, hadn't he? And he was the first of Team GB to pull off. Had that been mm. part of the tactics for the day, that he'd be the first to do his job and sit up? Um, I'm not too sure, really. I mean, it, it was just a case of whoever could... We had to stay as compact for as long as possible, really. So there was no plan of who would drop off or what. 
there was only four of us really. So you had obviously myself, Froome, Miller and, and Stannard. And we all thought if we could get, we could all get over Box Hill for the last time and, and ride in really. So we couldn't account on the day for who's going to be tired and who was not going to have the legs or whatever. So it, it was, we, we worked like that really. And we never really sacrificed anyone too early just in case someone crashed or something. So, you know, we had to, we had to try and get as many bodies as far into the race as possible. Team GB had been everyone's pick for the day. Mark Cavendish was scripted to pick up his first Olympic goal to add to all the titles, all the victories of his career, and it wasn't to be. Looking back on that, is there anything that you think the team could, should have done differently on the day? Um, no, I think the only thing probably Mark might say he should have done was maybe try and try and jump into that move when it went because he certainly had the legs. I think he, his whole thing was about losing weight that year and can he get up Box Hill that many times, you know, and he was the lightest he's ever been. He'd probably go as good as he's ever got. It didn't affect his speed as we'd seen in the tour that year. Um, but I think rather than waiting, trying to maybe for us to have bodies at the front to bring that group back, he probably had the legs to jump into that group. And he actually said at the finish, I probably had the legs on the last time at Box Hill to go across to that move. <laughs> I mean, that's how good he was. So in hindsight, it, you know, he should have probably started following those moves. But because of it, he's so institutionalised for waiting in that group that he can't climb, it's constantly, he's constantly told, you know, you're not getting over the last climb, you're not over, that he just waited for his riders to come back and we could bring that back. But And it would have been a first in his career, really, to, to jump into a move. And But he would have still got, he'd have been isolated in the front then and probably got marked out of it in the front and still not come away with the win. So I don't think we could have done anything different. I think that we um, pretty much did our best that day and it, it just wasn't to be. That's the nature of road racing. There's only one person who can win out of 200 and it's such a lottery and so unpredictable. And as you say, the team tactics had worked so well at the World Championships in Copenhagen the year before when Mark won the title. Um, you still had the time trial to come though, didn't you, four days later? So your work was far from done. How yeah. quickly were you able to refocus on that? Yeah, I mean, I was just exhausted after the road race and... Um, by then, obviously, Dave and Cavan went off and, and met families and stuff. So me and Chris Froome went back to Fox Hills. And it was just the pair of us then for the next four days and pretty much just didn't watch any Olympic pro- programs, just left the telly off and just tried to recover for a day or two and just did my little rides around. My, my new Olympic bike turned up and I had to kind of jig with that. So the team got even smaller by that point. And I think Emma Pooley was there. I can't remember who else rode the time trial for the women. So there was literally the team was down to four then, eating in that room. And, you know, it was, um, that's when I started really focusing and, and kind of, I didn't put too much pressure on myself. I knew I'd been unbeaten in time trials all that year and I knew the power I had to average and stuff like that. And I knew, I knew I'd get a medal. So I sort of comforted myself with that. But I knew if I just executed the rides to the best of my ability that I, I wouldn't be beaten. And everything went well. It's just about the execution. I just focused on that rather than the hype that was building at that point that we hadn't won a gold medal. You know, who was going to win the Olympic gold? And I think the morning that I won, the the two rowing women won gold. So um, that was it, really. I kind of just avoided watching any Olympic coverage. Just watched Strike It Lucky and Michael Barrymore, um, things like that on the telly. Just anything to, to, to not remind yourself that you're in, um, in the bubble. Hands Under the Hammer was a good one. Um, <laughs> which was well, great the rest well of the nation was glued to Olympic coverage so Bradley Wiggins is watching reruns of Poems Under the Hammer no but that was the great thing you're in the UK so you could watch British TV <laughs> what Eamon Eamon would be on in the morning Eamon you know? <laughs> 
Right, well, while Bradley is uh, busy watching this morning and all the delights of British TV, it is time to look at the women's road race, which was now Britain's first chance to win a home Olympic medal after disappointment in the men's race the day before. Lizzie, you said at the top of the show that you felt you were able to sort of fly under the radar until the men the previous day didn't get that gold medal that everyone had expected of them. Uh, how did it feel now going into the race on the Sunday? Still no medal for Team GB. <laughs> um, actually, you know what? The pressure, it, I still didn't realise it. I think um, being young and inexperienced was probably to my advantage. Um, I was just in a nice golf resort in you know, the south of London enjoying myself. And we had the defending champion with Nicole Cook. Um, and she kind of, Nicole was a fierce competitor and was talking herself up to win the race. So I was just honestly just focusing on myself and not really thinking too much about everything else going on around. I don't think I understood how big it was before the race. itself. Well, even before the race, I was standing on the mile and the crowds were building throughout the morning. The atmosphere built into something just absolutely electrifying. Were you aware of any of that before your race got underway? No, no. I was in absolute shock. Like when we did the race itself, I've never been in a race like it since. There was crowds every metre of the whole course and they, they weren't just one deep. There were people were everywhere. So it was, it was a pretty phenomenal um, experience in that way. So what was the game plan then going into the day? Mariana Voss was a favourite for the race. Was she part of your pre-race tactics? Well, pre-race tactics, bit of a funny one uh, because, yeah, like I say, we had the, the previous Olympic champion, Nicole Cook, there um, and she had her own game plan. And in in defence of Nicole, she was always very clear about that. She was going to do her own race. So that left me, Emma Foley and Lucy Martin to have our own tactic. Um, and we... We decided to go for me, that I'd be the team leader. And my individual tactic really was just to follow Marianne Voss. She was completely dominant at that time. And I, she was the person that everyone was going to follow. She was part of the Dutch team. She was the strongest team in the race. So my tactic completely pinned on Marianne. Yeah. Right, Lizzie, well, let's get to the race itself then. We had various attacks early on, none of them really sticking. And then we got to the second and final climb up Box Hill. Now, this is where we expected the race to blow apart, really. Talk us through what happened there. Uh, so the women's race was actually a little bit different to the men's race. We only went up Box Hill twice, and um, the men did nine. So their race took a different shape. The women's race still had a long section of flat to go after Box Hill. So it was pretty inevitable. We thought there'd be a bunch of sprint. So... When Marianne went on Box Hill, she was the clear favourite. I went with her and thought, I remember thinking at the time, why aren't they all coming? And it didn't occur to me that it was because they weren't strong enough. I must have just been on a flyer and was just feeling amazing and was thinking, well, what are they all playing at? But we got this gap. And um, actually, I think Marianne decided that it was too early and kind of messed around a little bit. Um, the group came back to us and it was actually on a small little rise, a little kicker out towards the kind of running back into London that me, Mariana, Shelley Olds and Zablinskaya went away. And I think with a group of four, we were kind of messing around. Um, not all of us were committing until Shelley Olds punctured. And then it was like, right, there's three of us, there's three medals at stake and we all put our head down and we're away then. So it's really interesting hearing you 
wondering why the others weren't uh, joining you because I guess you're trying to second guess everyone else's tactics in a race at what stage did you realize that actually you were just stronger that these medals were going to be contested between you I think um, when the gap got out to a minute and it just wasn't coming down and then the rain started and as soon as the rain starts hammering like that and you're riding around London streets that are slippy and wet you know that as a three you're going to go through them so much quicker than a disorganized peloton behind so um, yeah I think the weather made a big difference to our chances of that escape working. Lizzie, I don't think I'll ever forget that finish. The sprint to the line, the crowds on the mile, several people deep on either side, that horrific weather. I mean, it was an incredible atmosphere as a bystander. What was it like for you? Uh, just the most amazing moment in my career. Nothing has matched it since, not even becoming world champion. I think it was just a phenomenal experience as a British rider with British crowds, British weather. It was, yeah, spectacular. and. Um, I wish I could do it all again, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't just a first medal for you at your first Olympic Games, it was a first medal for Team GB as well of their home games. That must have made it feel incredibly special as well. Only with hindsight afterwards when journalists are telling you, you know, like as an athlete, you've no idea that you could potentially be the first medal. Uh, so yeah, it was only in post-race interviews that I came to realise that and that kind of became my little tag afterwards, which was quite <laughs> cool, yeah. And after the rain beating us all down all day, the heavens finally cleared in time for you to get your medal. How did you celebrate that evening? Do you remember? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, I got, you do all this like rigmarole where you go through all these journalist things. And then I uh, was doing the time trial afterwards. Bradley remembers me in the hotel, obviously. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, went back to the hotel to that small bubble uh, with Emma Pooley, Bradley and Free and my parents were allowed by Dave Railsford into a little room for about 20 minutes. We had a chocolate dessert <laughs> and uh, celebrated. Yes, it wasn't really after uh, until after the time trial that we had a proper party and did the full works, you know, open top bus tour around the hometown and stuff. So, yeah, we celebrated properly eventually. That was it though. On the day itself, we just said. A, a chocolate dessert for 20 minutes no party poppers or anything no nothing no well the celebration was still to come um yeah, exactly. and it's time to relive one of the standout gold medals of the london olympics the men's individual time trial with sir bradley wiggins bradley um, you'd been through so much already by the time we got here hadn't you yeah. um battling through and winning the tour de france trying to help mark cavendish to victory in the men's road race and now the end was finally in sight for you, really. The time trial was the last box to be ticked. How did you feel going into this? Well, I mean, I was just like extremely focused that morning. I always do my sort of day before prep. And I remember going out on my bike, which I had a different bike to the tour, uh, my sort of British built UK side bike. And um, I remember just doing my little laps around um, uh, the, the Fox Hills Resort and where we get into sort of eight minutes of, of race effort. And I remember just cruising and, and, holding watts that I wanted to average for the for the time trial. And uh, I remember thinking I'm ready now. I've, I'd fully recovered from the road race and I knew it was in the bag. I just had to execute the ride and not get too overawed by it. And as I said, I didn't try and watch any of the um, TV that morning, you know, the build up to it or anything like that. I just stayed, stayed quite focused, really. We had a little hotel on the bridge. I think I was on um, Hampton Court Bridge where we went early, had lunch there, and we had a room there where we could chill out. It was just like 
I always considered it like waiting to go to the gallows, you know, because it, it felt like that. It felt like life and death at times. And just being extremely focused, knowing that the whole country's watching, the expectation is on you to, to win the gold and maybe Britain's first. But <clears throat> at that stage, I didn't know that the, the women had won in the morning. Um, and obviously, where the hotel was, it was right on the sort of start-finish area. So there was hordes of people outside. So... Once I came out of there to the start, I had my headphones on and hood up. I had to walk pretty much 500 metres to get to the warm-up zone um, and try and go unrecognised and just keep walking a straight line. So I had music on my hood up. <laughs> and I walked past this little cafe and I saw my mum outside and she saw my kids are inside the cafe and they started coming running out. And I couldn't, I didn't want to see them or look at them at that point because I just started crying, I think. I just had to keep, I thought they're going to be there in an hour's, two hours time. So it, it was like the cruelest act to not say hello to them, but, and, but to sort of stay that focused that I couldn't let any emotion come in at that point. Um, it was just so business-like. Um, and that, I, I think when you look back, that's kind of the cruelty of elite sport really is that you have to be so, you have to give up your happiness in order to be so good at something. And that's if, to, to have to ignore your kids when they're that young that they don't know. Well, why didn't Dan say hello to us? It's quite hard to think back at that, really. And it, I think that's just, I think most people can resonate with that, that elite sports people, you know, because, but then, you know, once, the, I, as I say, I went to the warm up zone, I went through my normal routine, went to start, um, and, and just had to execute that ride, really. I had, a, I had my plan, and it was all based on the wattage, really, that we, we went on. And I knew every part of the course and where I could gain time, where, where I could ease up, where I could have my gel and all those. So the whole thing was planned, mapped out and it was executing that bit by bit, not thinking of the whole ride in its entirety or the others or what the other riders are doing. And I pretty much, it was probably the best, my best performance really, the way I executed the ride and, and what a time to do it. So it was great. Yeah, what a time. What a time to thrill everyone with it. Talk us through the first time check of the day. Cast your mind back to then. Was everything on track at that stage? Yeah, I mean, I went out. I went out on plan. This is when I talk about executing the ride, really. It's like the first 100 metres or 200 metres of a 400 metre race, you know, to be on the athletics track. And I went out and I was just floating and felt so good. And the first five, 10 minutes, I was probably going harder in terms of the watts I was producing than I needed to but I just felt so good and comfortable and we went through the first time check I think it was after 5k um, and Tony Martin was my reference really I thought he'd be the closest um, and I was five seconds down on him I, I seem to remember Sean Yates telling me and the minute that I knew it, he told me I was five seconds down on Tony Martin I knew I'd won the race because <laughs> I knew he'd gone out too hard and he wouldn't be able to sustain it because I knew how hard I was going. I knew I was fitter than him. So that gave me a lot of confidence, which is funny, really, being down at a time check. But I knew I'd got him at that point. And then the next one, I think I was 15 seconds ahead of him, I seem to remember, or something like that, at the top of this little rise. Um, um, and then it just then then the gap just grew and grew, really, from that point. Um, and the last time check I remember was... 5k to go, I think, going past Sigma Sport. And Sean Yates told me I was 29 seconds up on Tony Martin. So it was just, but that first time check was key, really, because that was that was going to show me how much. Like, is it? I knew he knew that he probably couldn't beat me that day because he hadn't all year, and he had to try something different. And his tactic that day was to go out harder. That's where riders panic really, and they do something different to what they would normally do. 
Um, and, and that lack of confidence from Tony showed me that, you know, he was willing to just push the envelope out a bit more, knowing he probably didn't have it, but was willing to risk it all. And, and as I say, he, um, he didn't try and match me or anything. He tried to go out harder and scare me, but actually it gave me confidence. Bradley, I was watching um, that day from the final corner in Hampton Court. And I remember trying to broadcast live and having to shout over the noise of the crowd. The atmosphere, the support was was just phenomenal. Were you able to take any of that in at the time? Well, the only time I remember really being aware of the crowds was, as I say, we came over Kingston Bridge. I had to slow right down to take the race line round the roundabout. And I accelerated out. And there's a pub there in Sigma Sport. And I remember the, 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 the crowd was that narrow because they were all in the road that I, um, in, in, in starting pretty much from sort of a slow speed to accelerate again, the noise gave me goosebumps. Um, that was the first time I became aware of it. And as, as I sort of exited that noise where the road was a bit quieter, Sean Yates told me that was 29 seconds up on Tony Martin. It was 5k to go. I thought, you've got this, this is in the bag. And then because I took my mind off the ball because of the crowds and I'd come out of that focus, you realize how much it started to hurt. Um, and because I started then saying, you've won this now, you know, that's where your focus starts slipping. So then I started panicking and then I thought, well, I started going harder then because I thought that's when the insecurity comes back and bites you because, because I'd let myself get carried away with the emotion a bit by getting goosebumps and feeling here in the crowd. Um, that's when your normal self kicks in and you start going, bloody hell, you're going to win here, actually. But you'd, I knew I was going to win, but the other side of the coin is like the elite athlete goes away and it's like... Right, you're gonna win. It was like, no, nah, come on. And then, <laughs> th- then, so then I started thinking, well, what if Tony Martin? Then I started thinking rationally. I thought, well, what if Tony Martin's held something back and he's gonna take 29 seconds out of me in the last 5k? Completely irrational to what I was thinking at the first time check, where I was super focused, wouldn't talk to my kids or anything. So I thought, well, just sit on 500 watts, Brad. Just hold 500 watts, and there's no, he's gonna have to do 550. So I just feathered 500 watts the lot. And the, that you talk about that last corner. If you watch the film, as I'm coming round, knowing when I was up. The desperation in my face thinking that Tony might have actually done this because the last 5k I wasn't I wasn't in that extreme focus like I was at the start because I'd come out of it because the crowd brought me out of it which is a strange thing and I was just this insecure athlete that thought he could lose 29 seconds and if I sit on 500 watts I might still lose 29 seconds I mean just completely stupid to say that now but but that that's where the human self kicks in you know and that was the crowd that did that to me so when you talk about the crowd Becoming aware of them made me realise the sense of occasion. That happened to me as well. Yeah. Where? When? 200 metres to go in the sprint in the road race, the crowd came into my mind and I lost focus. And I don't think I would have beat Mariana, not at all, but I would have done my sprint differently and given myself a better chance. But the occasion hit me with 200 metres to go. So I know exactly what Brad means there. Yeah. We're so used to thinking of you guys as almost robots and being so well mentally trained to shut all of that out. It's fascinating to hear that in a home game, especially with London 2012 and all the chaos and, and craziness and wonderful magic that it was, is enough to get to even the likes of YouTube. Well, who said dreams don't come true? Bradley, you'd done it. Just over a week after winning the Tour de France, you'd won Olympic gold in front of that home crowd. Was that moment everything that you hoped it was going to be? Yeah, I think when I finished, you know, just the, I think the realisation that it was the end of what we set out for because it was part of the tour, really. The tour was still going on for us, really. I mean, I won everything that year, you know, the Dauphiné, Romandie, Paris, the tour and that. So that was the end of what I'd been training for. 
I never knew what was going to happen next after my whole life had been mapped out to that point. And I knew it was never going to get any better. I might, I knew I'd do other things, but I didn't to do that in London. It was so special. Um, the execution of the ride, everything, just trying to soak everything in at that moment. And then, then it hit me what the torment to people in this country as well. The real, you know, we were finally out of that bubble and life, life was never the same again from that day onwards. I think for me, really, um, to the point at times where I wished it never happened, I maybe, but, you know, I, I'm happy sitting here today, so I'm glad it did happen. But, you know, it was, um, it was huge, really. You know, it was, um, I don't know, it's hard to, I mean, you, you'll know because you were there when you reported on it, but it was um, with that generation with Lizzie, Victoria on the track, Chris Hoy, Cavendish as world champion, Froome, that was really what started the boom in cycling, wasn't it, that period? And it, it went mental after that, didn't it, for everyone? And you had no say really over how the public were going to react to you and how much of a pedestal they put you on. You'd been doing your job incredibly well, but you had those hopes and that joy of the nation to carry with you then. I mean, looking back at that that image of you on the throne at Hampton Court Palace, and you know, it's just, it's an iconic image now in sporting history. <laughs> Can you look back on that with joy, or do you look back on it and see all the all the ups and downs that have come since as a result? Yeah, of no, it? I look back and I know who, I'm not that person anymore. I know who he was. I feel sorry for him. That was me and my insecure introvertness sat on the throne with a bank of photographers in front of me not knowing what to do so I just did that you know I did that from school days you know perform you know that need to feel to perform you know and I I can't really look at pictures of that then me so you know as 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 kind of focused and as amazing as he was on a bike that athlete the how extremely could focus and execute a ride of that magnitude off the bike there was this insecurity and this introvertness where I couldn't I didn't know how to react socially and do things. I'd have to be shocking or say something, you know, quite contentious. And that, as you found out a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Once or that, three times, yeah. You know, just that, that was that kind of sort of, um, and I realised why I was like that now, you know, growing up. So kind of having everything done for you, not really having much of a childhood and all that sort of stuff. And that's why I was like that, you know. So it's that sort of bizarre fragility and vulnerability off the bike but the you sort of genius to be able to produce that stuff on it so all that stuff on the throne and that as much as people loved it, it i know where it came from as a person it's like I, I look at it and that's myself and you know that person at times I, when i look back I was quite embarrassed by some of the things i did but on that throne you know people think it's just you being cool and you're being funny as f- but excuse me language but it was just um it was a it was done in that introvertness and shyness really yeah. And Lizzie, what about you? Bradley says about you all being part of this golden generation and being celebrated in a way that sports people so rarely are outside of football, maybe in the UK. Were you aware of that at that intense time? Yeah, you were thrust into this environment and the the fact that all these people suddenly knew you in a way. Mm-hmm. Um and that was quite challenging, yeah, because there's no guidance for it. There's no one who's been there in your family or small circle who really understands it. Um, I mean, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience, but there were certainly like challenges along the way with becoming a Z-list celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, a little, a little bit higher than that. Was Was there ever any part of you, like Bradley, that kind of wished that that hadn't happened in that way? I mean, your journey was different. Everyone's journey is different afterwards. 
Or do you always look back with happiness on that moment or is it sort of... Still, that's my my favourite sporting memory, definitely. Just as a, a sports fan in general, like the Olympics in London was incredibly special. My family all got to experience it. And yeah, nothing nothing has come close in my opinion. What about that party in the end then, Lizzie? You had a 20-minute chocolate cake with your parents uh, before the time trial. How did you celebrate eventually? Uh, well, yeah, that was another shocking thing. Like it was pouring down in rain with rain the day after the closing ceremony in Otley. And my mum said, the local council have organised an open top bus store. And I says, mum, you better cancel it. No one's going to come. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they did. The, the streets were full of people and it was pouring down. And it was just, yeah, a bit of a pinch me moment because it obviously meant so much to the local community as well as to me and my family. So yeah, it was quite a privilege, really. Bradley, I would ask you how you celebrated, but I feel like I should ask when you stopped celebrating. That was quite a summer for you afterwards, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I ended up doing all sorts, you know, I ended up joining a band and stuff and touring and, you know, it was just, um, it, 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 it led me to access sort of other interests in my life that I would never have dreamed of, you know. Um, and that that was a strange thing because, well, that I, think, I suppose that was a strange thing, but it was also a good thing because... Um, I would never have got to experience that really. And that was all from that world, but that detracted from why I got in the first place. And so I think that became more of a distraction, um, you know, playing rather than going out training and I'm playing at Hammersmith Apollo on stage with a band in front of 5,000 people. And, and, and that wasn't my job, you know, so that impacted on the following years then I think. Um, but you know what? I have no regrets really because, I never wanted to go back to the tour and all that and do all that sort of stuff again. You know, I, I that was enough for me at that point. I was happy with that. And Lizzie was saying earlier about dominance and that, you know, I'd been dominant for 18 months, and, but I didn't want to be dominant for four or five years and, and carry on doing things like that with the kids when they come, you know, and ignore them and stuff. And, you know, that, that was enough for me. I was happy. And, and to do that in London, you know, I could have won 10 Olympic golds and never won one in London. And that was the one to win. Bradley, Lizzie, it's been an absolute pleasure reliving London 2012 with you both. I've loved it. I've, I've been transported right back to those magical few days. So thank you for allowing us to relive those incredible achievements with both of you. And thank you for the performances in the first place. You give joy to an awful lot of people. And we hope you have all enjoyed this return to London 2012. And we hope to see you again very soon. That was Return to London 2012 with Brad and Lizzie Dignan in conversation with Orla Shenoui. We'll be back very soon with new episodes of The Bradley Wiggins Show. In the meantime, you can catch more from the series on Britain's magical summer of sports on the Eurosport player. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.